Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. We appreciate being included as a part of your day, and we've got a fun show today. Well, we're going to, we hope it's going to be a fun show. We've got an informative show coming. We're going to talk markets here in just a moment with Darren Newsom, senior analyst over at Bar Chart. And then in segment two, we're going to chat cattle fundamentals with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. In segment three, we're going to look at some of the competing acreage here in the United States with the cotton crop coming into focus and some recent changes to cotton exports that could help support that market. And then finally, we're going to close today with Kurt Blades of the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. He had a chance to sit down with Jesse Allen, the head of the, the excuse me, Farm and Ranch Director at the American Ag Network. And uh, he's going to fill us in on what he's watching for in the months ahead for that hot ag equipment industry. But right now, we're going to turn the focus to the grain markets. Joining us is Darren Newsom. He's the senior analyst over at Bar Chart. And Darren, new crop corn appears as though $5 is a line in the sand for support. Yeah, it, it's interesting, Mike. Oh, you know, we, I always like to talk about corn's characteristic round numbers and, you know, corn contracts and basically every aspect of the market likes to find uh, support and resistance at, at round numbers. You know, last week we saw it. Uh, we saw D's corn drop to, I think, a low of 490 and three quarter. I think it was Thursday before it started to rally. And then Monday's high, no, got up to right around 510 uh, and it backed off a little bit. So it is, it is, you know, really testing these. Uh, it is really checking out these round numbers right now. It's trying to hold above five. We'll see how long this lasts. Everything right. I mean, it, it, it's been a fascinating few days, uh, you know, with from both a technical and fundamental point of view. We'll just have to see if it has any staying power, if it can find some long-term buying uh, coming into these markets. Darren, you mentioned the past few days from a technical mm -hmm. perspective have been very interesting to watch. And I'm curious, what has the managed money, those non-commercial traders, been doing given the technical moves of the past few days? Do we Are we pulling them back in yet? That's what I was really interested in seeing. And looking at the CME website this morning, uh, the total open interest change, we actually saw open interest in corn go up. And so, and this was in July, SEP and D's contracts off of Monday's rally. And so this tells me that there were, that, that there was, some new buying coming into the market. Now, we have to keep in mind that the last uh, CFTC commitment to traders report, Legacy Futures Only, uh, which was released last Friday for a week ago today, showed you know non-commercial traders still holding a net short of almost 50,000 contracts in corn. And so you know, there's a lot to cover. If they want to go long this market, there's a lot of, to cover. And so for no other reason than short covering, particularly in the old crop July contract, we could see this market rally. We could see that contract rally. Now we look over to the uh, we look over to the new crop. December posted a bullish spike reversal on its daily chart last Thursday after it hit that four oh excuse me that four ninety and three quarter. It hasn't drawn a lot of money in, but it's starting to bring some money in. And I, I know it's too early. I know it's late May, but there's a lot of talk about. Uh, you know, finishing off May with warmer and drier weather going into the first half, maybe all of June, same weather pattern. Uh, you know, so 
it looks like it's triggering at least a little bit of algorithm buying. Again, it's too early for a weather market, but sometimes algorithms don't care about calendars. They're seeing the forecast. They know the market's ahead, you know, crops ahead of what it usually is. Uh, and, and, we're, and we're seeing some buying coming in. Now we'll have to see if it actually has some long-term legs to it and if we can build from here. Well, Darren, you mentioned those algos aren't necessarily watching for the full story. They can be watching for headlines or price mm -hmm. levels as well. And as you mentioned, July found a little bit of a bid here that potential for short covering exists. What price level do you think July would need to hit to spur that short covering into action? I, I think we've actually seen some of it. And and so now what we have to watch, I believe the, uh, oh, I got to look here, the uh, the 50-day moving average, which is important, not necessarily to to all analysts like myself, but Well, uh, looks like we might have. Hey, Darren, sorry, we lost you there for a second. You were mentioning that it's not something all analysts watch, but it's something yeah. you pay close attention to. What was yeah, that? Yeah, you know, I, I do like to look at the at the moving averages, and uh, you know, I know algorithms have those built into them. So, you know, right now that fifty day moving average is up around six oh seven, so just short of six ten. So obviously, the big number six dollars. Uh, we're still just short of five eighty. So there's some work to do in the July contract. Uh, and if it's going to happen again, it's probably going to come from some non-commercial short covering. See if it can push higher. Darren, we've seen the soy products market get some attention this week with the big purchase from the Philippines. We've seen meal continue to sell off of the down slightly here today. Where do you see the products going from here? Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting situation. Now, I, I've been arguing that you know we would see increased demand for U.S. soybean meal given Argentina's situation. And, you know, last Thursday's weekly export sales and shipments update showed that it, the demand was starting to the export demand was picking up a little bit, but the market kind of fell flat this week. So, you know, it's like so many other things. It just could be a bit of a seasonal slump here where it's just hard to get much buying interest at all going in the in the uh, in the oilseed complex. Well, let's turn our focus, Darren, if we can, to the wheat market. Again, you mentioned it has been an interesting week. Almost no market more susceptible to that interestingness here than the wheat complex. We've got some bullish attitudes today. Are they here to stay? It, I think it's mixed. Uh, in Kansas City, it's certainly, let me put it this way, it certainly should be. I know there's some forecasts for some heavy rains, but rains on dead wheat doesn't change anything. So uh, it's what, what was really fascinating to me was as we watched the July Kansas City play out, we rallied this thing like a dollar eighty or more over the last couple of weeks, and then we immediately fell a dollar ten. But what what was interesting is that last sell off occurred over three sessions, and that was it. And then you know into win, into Monday morning before it rallied, and it brings to mind you know the Benjamin Franklin fish similarity where like a like guess and fish markets start to stink three days after going against the trend, and that seems to be what's playing out in July. Kansas City. The buyers came back in. We rallied it Monday. We were a little, we, you know, we saw a double-digit sell-off in quiet trade overnight, and it bounced back immediately and went higher again on Tuesday. So now we'll have to see. Fundamentally, Kansas City wheat's one of the most bullish commodities out there because you know we've got an inverted forward curve as far out as we want to look. We know the crop's dead. Doesn't matter. We, you know, the tour kind of agreed with that that went along last week, but the fun, but the future spreads have been telling us that. It all comes down to the non-commercial side again. They, they have to jump in. They have to buy. If they don't, this market could just tread water for a while. Darren, I mean, we're pushing nine or excuse me, 830 here in the KC markets, 840 in the front month. When can we expect that short covering to jump back in or those non-commercials to jump back in? I, I would like, you know, back in the day, and you and I both remember when there was actual pit traders with experience and they knew what wheat was. 
And so they would wait. They would actually wait until the combines rolled and this and wheat would proved itself to actually be dead because there's always a chance, no matter how dead it looks, wheat can come back. I don't give today's markets that much credit for having the depth of experience to understand that. So, you know, while I would like to say we won't know until the combines actually start rolling, it could be it could be before that. I mean, it could be on the headlines and we'll just have to see if uh, if some of these algos get interested. Continue to keep an eye on these markets, folks. There are compelling fundamental stories here in the grain complex. We've been talking with Darren Newsom, senior analyst at Bar Chart about them. And Darren, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on again, Mike. Folks, stay with us. We'll take a look at cattle fundamentals with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to The Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on The Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. At four in the morning, my phone rang. They said, I regret to inform you that your husband was wounded in action. Victor sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. I was doing school full time, and I was also then caring for Victor. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. I just didn't want to forget that I also had goals and that I also had a life. What I did is I challenged Victor to meet me halfway. There are almost six million military and veteran caregivers across the nation. We have our own journey and we can fulfill that journey at the same time that we are helping our loved one. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heartfell Voice U.S. 
For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, it's time to turn our attention to the cattle market. It's been riding high for the past two months near, well, in record territory and then down dancing around record territory. And a lot of this strength is on the back of supply concerns. The trade has been watching closely the monthly cattle on feed reports from the USDA. And on Friday, we got the most recent. Joining us now to discuss the details is Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. Dennis, thanks for joining us here today. You're welcome, Mike. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about what we learned on Friday from the Cattle on Feed report. Broad consensus, Dennis, was that it was a neutral report given the wide uh, expectations we had from traders going in. Yeah, that, I would agree with that. Uh, on feed numbers are peaked at 97% of a year ago. Placements were down 4%, so they were at 96%. The marketing number was a 90%, but there was one fewer weekday this year versus last year. So that's really not a horrible marketing number, certainly not like it appears. Uh, so placements down, I believe, Mike, for the eighth consecutive month, we've experienced lower placements of cattle into the feedlots. And- one difference I noticed this month, Mike, was that uh, – Placements in Texas were lower. Uh, In March, placements in Texas were up substantially, we believe, due to dry uh, pasture conditions. That seems to be improving right along. It does, Dennis. And that placement question has been such a big one here for the market. Coming into this report, I understand we had a huge spread in placement expectations. Some folks were thinking we could see as much as, you know, six, eight, nine percent reductions in placements. Where do you think we go from here as we, as you mentioned, start to see some moisture through the plains? Well, I think uh, as the moisture events uh, are becoming more commonplace in, in the southern plains especially, that'll further restrict placements. They'll continue to want to hold which is something they've not seen in quite some time, uh, green plentiful grass. Placements will be restricted further. And then perhaps even more importantly, it should just stabilize the uh, the cow slaughter as they continue to liquidate beef cattle would be friendly to the cattle market longer term. Yeah, that, that liquidation has been something else. Dennis, one question I had for you was the other disappearance. Uh, that came in at 51,000, 6% below 2022. I know it's a small number at the end of the day. Is that something you even pay attention to, or is that just a rounding error on most of these uh, reports? Yeah, I'm not sure what that was about. I honestly pay very little attention to that. Uh, so, no, I, I guess I couldn't comment uh, uh, educationally on that number. That is just fine. Dennis, I just see it reported. And I thought, hmm, I wonder why they do that. But let's turn our focus to the market's reaction to this report. Dennis, as you mentioned, this is mainly confirmation of the fact that we know supplies are still tight out in the countryside, and yet we're not seeing a very bullish reaction in the trade to start the week here. 
yeah, boy, we're seeing quite a sell-off now. Shoot, June cattle are, are 120 lower, August are 150 lower, as I look at the screen. One uh, new development, Mike, is a, there was reported an atypical BSE case out of South Carolina over the weekend at a slaughter plant. Uh, the cow did not enter the food chain. It was, a, from what I understand, maybe a four-year-old cow from Tennessee. Uh, this is the sixth uh, atypical case uh, in the United States since 2003, and it should not and w I would think will not cause any sort of an export problem of beef out of the United States. I don't know if that's part of the reason for the sell-off in the early action today, but uh, uh, I'm certainly um, not expecting the sell-off to continue. Let's put it that way. Well, Dennis, and that's my question. Let's take a step back from this month's report. We continue to see those tight supplies. That BSE case, definitely something to keep on the, the back of our minds, no doubt, as we go through this week. But longer term, Dennis, where do you see this feeder cattle market going from here as these these green pastures potentially come back? Yeah, if we continue to see the drought pattern improve in the southern plains, I think you'll see, uh, well, the other important factor there is if corn prices continue to head south into the growing season, uh, you have the potential, in my opinion, for a uh, you know a 240 to 250 uh, feeder market at some point in time into the late summer fall time frame. That's not a big surprise or a real heroic uh, statement because uh, October feeders are at 237 right now. November feeders 237, but I think the board is accurate in projecting higher feeder cattle prices uh, as we move into late summer fall. Dennis, speaking of the feeder cattle prices, of course, we've seen the board. We've seen the board push into record territory. But the real action, at least the action that I've seen reported on social media, has been at the sale barns in the countryside. Saw over this weekend in South Dakota, 1,000-pound black steer brought 198. Dennis, are we accurately capturing the enthusiasm for feeders out there in the countryside in the futures market today? Well, it doesn't feel like it. It's somewhat frustrating. We watch these auction results all, the, all day long, all week long. Uh, it seems to me like uh, the real push in the feeder cattle market has been in the lightweight animals, uh, something that will give you a guy more time, uh, hopefully, to see lower feed prices come into play. And, and the lightweight animals are not part of the CME feeder index. Uh, the index is comprised mostly of, uh, you know, uh, 750 on up, uh, 850 type animals. Uh, so, no, it feels like to me we are not capturing uh, the bulk of this uh, early enthusiasm uh, in the CME feeder cattle index. Well, and we've got to capture that enthusiasm. We've got to be able to capitalize on that enthusiasm. If we're buying expensive feeder cattle, we've got to be able to sell those high-dollar beef animals into the market. Dennis, looking at consumer demand, it, I've got to imagine would help beef consumption if pork prices were a little bit higher at the retail level. They've stayed low. Is there any hope for the pork market to move higher as you look over this summer? Well, the pork market is a, is a strange market and extremely difficult to, to, to quantify right now. Why is demand for pork so poor right now? Part of the reason has been that uh, 
retail pork prices have been fairly high, and now they're starting to lower retail pork prices. But for some reason, the retailers simply were not uh, using pork as a uh, as a kicker to, to get uh, drive traffic into the retail. Beef prices have been high since COVID, and they've never gone down, which means there's no sticker shock on behalf of the consumer. So beef consumption continues to just be very strong, impressively strong, in fact. Dennis, looking out on the global scene, are there any issues you're watching that could impact either the pork or beef markets here over the summer? Well, we, we uh, switching to pork, I, I can't think of anything really significant in the beef sector uh, other than uh, we would expect uh, beef export business to remain good. But we, we do believe, and my sources are telling me, that, that China is experiencing another disaster with African swine fever, and it's, uh, it's whittling down their, their beef or their uh, pig herd uh, substantially. And none of this has been played out in the marketplace yet. Uh, perhaps by late summer uh, into the fourth quarter, uh, is something will, will come to light and, and that will forge a bottom, a major bottom in the hog market. Is it time to get long in those deferred hog futures quite yet, Dennis? Or do you want to see some of this news come out of China first? Yeah, it's not time yet to work contract lows. Uh, the timing on, on a bottom there is tricky, to say the least. And I'm certainly not willing to stick my neck out at this point in time. That is totally understandable, Dennis. We know the volatility in that hog market. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We'll continue to keep an eye on those cattle on feed reports and watch how that cash market out in the countryside continues to develop. Folks, we've been speaking with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services about the cattle market here today. And Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, we've got just a quick update on one of the stories Dennis mentioned there, that BSE case, that atypical BSE case that was discovered in South Carolina. As of now, no trade impacts directly, though the Korean Ministry of Agriculture said they're going to increase the spot inspection of U.S. beef imports from 3% of total tons imported to 10%, and they'll be keeping an eye out for any indication that BSE is more prevalent. Stay with us. We'll have more AOA coming when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. It's the most important race of the year. The one where winning is everything. Where the decisions you make now can and will define your entire season. The yields you're dreaming of are either won here or lost here. This is Corn Sprint 2023. You win it with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Specially formulated to make nutrients more available during the most critical uptake periods and strengthen root systems for better absorption. It's the kind of edge that gets your crops all the way to the finish line with greater yield potential, greater return on your fertilizer investment, and... Just plain old greatness. So win the corn sprint. Include Biopath in your early season fertilizer application. 
Contact your local retailer or visit cornsprint.com. This is AOA for the American Egg Network. I'm Richard Risfet with this market update. Corn is trading higher today with the European model showing little to no rainfall for the majority of the corn belt over the next 10 days or so. Yesterday's export inspections were solid at 52.1 million bushels for the previous week, which is still down though 33% from last year. Crop progress was released and shows corn at 81% planted versus 65% last week and 69% from last year. Emergences at 52% compared to 30% last week. Soybeans, meal, and oil are all trading lower today on the heels of poor export inspections that were only 5 million bushels. Now, they need to be an average of 15 million bushels each week to meet USDA's inspections. Planting progress is moving along for soybeans as well and is now at 66% planted versus 49% last week and 47% from last year. Emergence, 36% versus 20% last week. Now, yesterday's rally, of course, was encouraging, but it was not based off of any new fundamental news and was likely just a result of some short covering. And unless there are any weather issues coming up here, traders are anticipating that U.S. yield outlooks improve, increasing U.S. production, and the combination of a record soy crop from both the U.S. and Brazil is concerning for prices. All three wheats are up this morning, with the hard wheats leading the way. Winter wheat is rated 31% good to excellent versus 29% last week. Spring wheat is at 64% planted versus 40% last week. And emergence is at 32% versus 13% last week. Now, the UN is concerned by the lack of ships going to one port, the largest in Ukraine in the Black Sea region. They have not received any ships since May 2nd, and the UN is not sure who is to blame. And China is reportedly using less soy and corn in their hog feed and instead opting to use wheat in an effort to curb reliance on imports, especially from the U.S. The VIX is trading around 18 this morning, while the dollar firms up and crude oil is over a dollar higher. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track, no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and there has been some exciting news for the cotton industry. A very large buyer of U.S. cotton, Bangladesh, has recently rolled back some requirements on American cotton exports into that country. This was big news, came on the heels of a farm tour here with Bangladeshi officials, and we're going to be speaking with our friends at the National Cotton Council uh, here in the next few days about that decision and how it could impact those growers longer term. In the meanwhile, how 
however, we continue to see agricultural, well, and all government financing under focus in Washington, D.C. There's sort of a race right now between those funds that have already been authorized by Uncle Sam and future authorization of funds that's uh, being determined right now in both the House and Senate Ag Committees as they prepare for that 2023 Farm Bill. And of course, if you're paying attention to the broad macroeconomic news, you know that these Farm Bill discussions are now all wrapped up into this giant snowball of discussion around the debt ceiling and getting that raised. So in order to sort of put all of this into perspective, here's how things have been unrolling this week. Began early on Monday, USDA announced just about $400 million in spending into eight different states. Now, this particular batch of funding is going to be targeted towards about 2 million people in small towns and rural communities across eight different states. That's Georgia, Alabama, Florida, Alaska, Arizona, Kentucky, Mississippi, New Mexico, North Carolina, West Virginia, then they also included Puerto Rico. So it's eight states and Puerto Rico. This is $394 million in total that's going to be rolled out to improve housing, health care, and infrastructure. That's what these funds are going to be used for, and they're coming out as part of the Rural Partners Network. This is a network of different states and stakeholders put together by the USDA with a, quote, whole-of-government approach to helping communities tap economic resources. The idea being there are a lot of resources and programs out there for these communities. However, sometimes accessing them, whether it's the applications or the paperwork required, can be stumbling blocks for small and rural communities, particularly the staffing levels in these rural areas. So USDA is working to get them the tools they need to better compete for these dollars that are out there. Projects slated for uh, for this funding include uh, stream bank stabilization. We've got some flood prevention and watershed restoration as well, all coming with some of those funds. In addition, early on Monday, USDA announced $265 million in cost share funding for 28 different uh, watershed protection and improvement projects across 16 states. So these are all funds that were authorized and approved either in the farm bill of 2018, and they've been on a scheduled disbursement, or as is the case, at least with the Rural Partners Network funding, this was new money authorized under the Inflation Reduction Act of 2021, and now it is still being rolled out by USDA. Now, we saw a number of those COVID programs put a lot of money into the USDA's coffers here during the COVID pandemic. Obviously, access to food, both producing it and consuming it, was a huge concern throughout the pandemic. But as those concerns fade, now pressure is being brought to bear on the USDA for those funds going forward. House Republicans late last week, in fact, on Thursday, at a subcommittee hearing, voted along party lines to approve a spending bill for the USDA that would pull about $6 billion in energy and farm loan forgiveness funding from that organization. Now, this rule would also halt efforts on fair play rules and livestock marketing, and it would also cut back on that uh, sort of long-running thorn in the side of policymakers that uh, Commodity Credit Corporation, that CCC fund that the USDA under Tom Vilsack has been using to fund a lot of the climate smart agriculture initiatives, uh, that would also come under focus. The secretary would no longer be allowed to access those um, as easily as he has been in the past. Now, as I mentioned, this was voted along party line rules. Republicans voted to 
uh, withhold this $6 billion in funding. Democrats voted to uh, to let this bill fade. Uh, House Representative Andy Harris of Maryland is chair of the subcommittee, and he noted that, quote, some tough decisions have to be made. This bill takes the same approach American families take every day. They have to do more with less under the Biden economy. That was take one. House Ag Committee ranking member, so the highest ranking Democrat on the Ag Committee, David Scott of Georgia, issued a statement calling the Republican proposal a direct assault on rural communities across America. Now, this bill, as I mentioned, came out of a subcommittee hearing on Thursday. It did have the votes to pass out of that subcommittee. So now it rolls up to the full House Appropriations Committee, could come up for a discussion as soon as this week, and it would include $17 billion uh, in discretionary spending by the USDA, which would be down from the $36.8 billion that has been requested by the White House. We'll see how all that plays out, but it is happening, as we mentioned earlier, against the backdrop of these debt ceiling negotiations. Uh, We've been a week now of President Joe Biden and uh, House Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy having conversations, or at least their staffers having conversations about how best to resolve this debt ceiling limit. As of June 1st, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the Treasury Secretary might run out of free cash with which to pay its bills. That is sooner than some of the trade was anticipating, though it has been the timeline for these negotiations for the better part of three weeks. Now, yesterday on Monday, McCarthy and President Biden got together and had some negotiations. But as of late on Monday, no deal had yet been announced. Uh, Those discussions are set to resume here today, and it is expected to be ongoing. Now, it's interesting. We have not seen much of a reaction in the equity markets as of yet, and uh, that's been fascinating to watch, but it's been interesting to see the fact that uh, nobody's really taking any preparation so far. Mark Zandi, who serves as the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, notes that perhaps this year, given the slow pace of efforts in Washington to resolve this, Maybe it'll take a stock market sell-off or bond market sell-off to generate the required push to give the political leaders the capital they need to get an agreement worked down. Uh, Zandi said, quote, a sell-off in stock and bond markets may be what's required to get donors and voters to pound on lawmakers to stop the drama and increase the limit. As of now, the equity markets aren't taking a tumble, but we'll continue to keep an eye on it. This debt ceiling negotiation touches on agriculture. Of course, we could see USDA funding. We could see farm bill negotiations perhaps curtailed by what could come out of these these, uh, closed-door meetings in Washington, D.C., but we'll also continue to see some progress on these discussions. Now, another ongoing topic in the world of protein production, animal protein production, is the impact of cell-cultured meat. Now, this is different from plant-based alternative proteins, the the various meat-like burgers created with with plant protein, soy protein, soy uh, pea protein, etc. This particular study was done on cell-cultured meat, the idea that you can take cells from an animal, grow them in a petri dish with food, and then at the end of it, have a cut of meat without any animal being required to produce it. Now, this has been a hotshot of Silicon Valley area. We've seen lots of funding work into this cell-cultured meat space, the goal being to create meat that doesn't have a greenhouse gas impact. Of course, folks who are opposed to, uh, to animal production always bemoan the methane produced by livestock. 
Well, UC Davis, University of California at Davis, a strong livestock school, or a strong ag school, I should say, recently dug into this question. Is cell-cultured meat better for the environment than conventionally raised protein? Well, their analyst says maybe the answer is not as clear-cut as some of the cell-cultured meats proponents might be arguing. They did a full life cycle assessment. What these researchers were looking for was the energy needed and the greenhouse gases emitted in all stages of production. So this is that scope three we've talked about in the past, up and down the supply chain. What they found is that the fact that lab-grown meat needs to use highly refined or purified media in order to grow that requires a lot of energy. The researchers, uh, Derek Reiser and Edward Sprang, note that the potential impact to global warming could be 80% lower than conventional protein production, or it could be 26% higher than conventional beef production. And what they note is that it's going to be challenging for this industry to scale up. Uh, Dr. Reiser said, quote, our findings suggest that cultured meat is not inherently better for the environment than conventional beef. It's not a panacea. It's possible we could reduce the environmental impact of this type of technology in the future, but it will require significant technological advancement to simultaneously increase the performance and decrease the cost of cell culture media. Now, I've reached out to the folks at UC Davis. Hopefully, we'll have them on here in the next couple of days to dig in deeper to these findings and to see just how this could impact the discussion around cell cultured meat longer term. Going up north of the border, our friends in Canada, folks, we've mentioned this a few times, the province of Alberta has been ravaged by wildfires here over the past three weeks. This has been the most active wildfire season in Alberta's history. 695 hectares have burned. That'd be about 1.5 million acres so far. And more than 10,000 Albertans remain under evacuation orders. Now, this has been ongoing. 81 wildfires currently happening in forest protection areas is, but good news coming to those folks in Alberta. On Monday, some rain started to fall across many of the areas that are seeing some of the highest fire risk, and more rain is anticipated over the coming days. Firefighters are hoping that this coming rain and cooler temperatures could help reduce the battle that they have been having. But as of right now, there are nearly 2,900 firefighters from over 17 different agencies involved, plus many, many more from municipal and county emergency services all working to fight those blazes up in Alberta. Folks, stay with us. We're going to have a conversation. Jesse Allen, the head of the uh, farm, uh, farm and Ranch Director at the American Ag Network, had with Kurt Blades of the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Stay here. More AOA coming up in just a second. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. 
Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with James Rose, a weed management specialist with CHS, about weeds to watch in 2023 and strategies for protecting yield. James, what are some of the most troublesome weeds growers may see this year? My territory, I cover the Mid-South region around Arkansas and Western Tennessee. Palmer amaranth is going to continue to be one of the number one weeds that we have to deal with issues every year with. We've seen it creeping into the upper Midwest through South Dakota and that. And the Eastern Corn Belt, uh, water hemp is still going to be an issue and giant ragweeds. Then you move over to the Midwest, uh, water hemp, kochia, and as I said earlier, Palmer amaranth in some areas. James, is herbicide resistance still a concern? Yes, especially with Palmer amaranth and the amaranth species there. You know, down in our area, we've had documented cases of Liberty and Dicamba resistance here recently. And I think that's going to be a continuing issue, especially as we move into other weed species as well. James, it's important to keep those herbicide applications as efficient as possible. What are your recommendations? Using effective sites of action. Those early timely applications, catching weeds when they're small, overlapping your residual herbicides and not cutting any rates. I know times get tough with finances. People want to cut rates, but that's something you really don't need to do. James, what other strategies should growers be using to manage weeds and protect yield? Obviously, it's working closely with your agronomist, your cooperative agronomist, or whoever it may be. Using best management practices, you know, such as start clean, stay clean, finish clean throughout the growing season. Don't let weeds get away from you later in the year and go to seed. Many cultural practices, you know, if you have an area that's tough, maybe go in there and disc it up even though you don't want to. Go ahead and kill those weeds if you can't get in under control. As always, you know, you can use different products, water conditioners. Uh, CHS has quite a few of them, jackhammer type products um, that are acidifying water conditioners, those with AMS for your Liberty applications. And, you know, just using the correct adjuvant as well, whether it's NIS or Cropple, anything like that. Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, 
eggs, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. I wanted to let all of you know about another program called Market Talk. It's hosted by the American Ag Network's Farm and Ranch Director, Jesse Allen. He's been running the show for uh, for about a year. I've got the opportunity to host it this week. While he is out of town, I'd encourage all of you to check it out. You can find it online at markettalkag.com, and you can find it any place you'd get podcasts. And I mention that because just before he took off, Jesse Allen had the chance to talk with the associate of equipment manufacturers Kurt Blades about how they've seen equipment sales going so far this year and I wanted to share that conversation with you here. Joining us now here on the program with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers Kurt Blades is with us. Kurt great to catch up with you again sir I hope you're doing well. Things are doing well thanks for having me on today Jesse. Well, let's dive in and talk about the April numbers for the U.S. and Canada when we look at equipment sales, tractors, combine harvesters. And as we look at the U.S. numbers first here, Kurt, sounds like sales yeah. of self-propelled combines and four-wheel drive farm tractors continuing to grow a little bit. It's really interesting when you look at the tractor and combine sales. You know, we're holding consistent with the story we've been saying for the last six months to a year in that we've got you know, solid sales on traditional ag tractors. Uh, those tractors and combines, over 100 horsepower, row crop tractors, articulated four-wheel drives, those numbers have been pretty strong. However, there's some real weak spots in the uh, under 40 horsepower tractor, those kind of more traditional residential tractors, largely sold to suburban landowners and, and, and like that. Those have been pretty soft for a little while. And that's largely because that demand was very well satisfied during the pandemic. Well, and thinking about some of that demand, and you mentioned some of those smaller tractors, it's, it is very interesting to look at a lot of these numbers and really drill down into them. But it, to me, it feels like in the U.S. overall, uh, very healthy equipment market right now. I mean, that's, that's the, a good phrase to use, Jesse, healthy. Uh, I mean, as you know, farm economy, there's a lot of optimism out there. For the last couple of years, commodity prices have been pretty high. Mm -hmm. uh, net farm income has been pretty good. I know we've got we've got more than our share of concerns, whether it is the geopolitical concerns with trade or the ongoing concern with weather or you know whatever would come from a crop. But there's always a lot of optimism out there, and I think these numbers are purely reflecting of that overall optimism in the ag economy. Well, I know as well. We look north of the border in Canada, combine numbers just on fire here. It feels like the beginning of the year, Kurt. What is the latest with that situation? Well, I'll tell you, if you, if you look back, combine sales have been on fire in North America for a, for a while, specifically in, in the U.S. They've been strong for about six to eight months. So I think Canada's kind of 
you know, catching up with that, with, with their demand being satisfied. There's a whole lot of uh, new technology out there that folks are wanting to take advantage of and, and get into the field in advance of harvest so they can be a little bit more efficient. But there's also, you know, uh, so, you know so, so new brands, but also just sort of some unmet demand where, you know, maybe combines were a little bit harder to get your hands on during, uh, during some of the supply chain challenges. And those, uh, those deliveries are being made available. That's showing up very much in Canada, just like it was in the U.S. about six months ago. Well, Kurt, I should ask, as we kind of look out here, getting into the summer months and more and, and beyond that, or AEM, any projections, any thoughts on, on how this equipment market could continue to look the next few months ahead? I know some in farm country <laughs> and really everyone in the U.S., especially a little concerned with the state of the economy moving forward. Right. Commodity prices have pulled back a little bit. But mm -hmm. what's your thoughts and what's your take as we maybe – think in crystal ball a little bit here the next few months ahead well I'm, I'm not much of a predictor so i don't want to necessarily go on the record with anything solid about uh you know where i think these are going to trend i think we can sort of look at the past and say there's some good indications uh, of what things are going to continue but you are absolutely right jesse i mean the, the pullback on commodity prices you know it's a little concerning uh if you look at the the 40-year trends of tractor sales we track we've been tracking this numbers for about 40 years and it's almost a one-to-one -one relation, tractor sales and corn prices. So if corn prices have got some concerns, I mean, obviously, you know, that's some that's some storm some storm clouds we got to be a little bit worried about. But you also, it's hard to be in the farming business without a little faith and a little bit of optimism. And uh, what goes up comes down. What goes down comes back up. I tend to think uh, that this uh, the ag market in general is going to be strong for a while. The fundamentals are there. We all know what the global demand situations look like. There are clearly some black swans out there. Got to be worried about it. But I'm, but I'm still optimistic. Well, folks, that was Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers speaking with Jesse Allen, the host of Market Talk and the American Ag Network's Farm and Ranch Director. Taking a look around the world, before we go here on AOA for the day, we do have another HPAI roundup. It's the highly pathogenic avian influenza continues to be driving headlines in South America. Brazil reported here just about a week or two ago their first in a while HPAI outbreak in a wild bird. They now say they are investigating the suspected case of HPAI in a person in the state of Espiritu Santo. Now, this has been causing some trade disruptions for Brazil, and it's pushing that country to look even harder at perhaps putting in place a vaccination program similar to what is under discussion over in France. Now, it's also worth noting that two workers in the UK have tested positive for HPAI. Now, these human outbreaks mark an ongoing trend. We've seen bird-to-human crossover in Asia. Now we've seen it in Central and in South America and potentially here in the UK. This all happens while Alaska is actually battling a severe Hylipath avian influenza outbreak. It's currently posing a significant risk to both birds and domestic poultry. Their state veterinarian, Bob Gerlach, issued a warning here recently, and he says, as migratory birds are returning to the state. Backyard flocks are especially vulnerable. This outbreak currently in Alaska began last spring. It has uh, it has escalated and it continues to be a concern for folks in that state. Just an update 
Overall, this outbreak of HPAI across the United States, as of now, has resulted in the culling of 58 million domestic poultry. That's layers, that's broilers, that's ducks, geese, and turkeys as well. Tomorrow here on AOA, Mike Adams will be back in behind the microphone. He'll be speaking with Todd Neely about rate to repair and checking markets with Arlen Suderman. Tune in then for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Please be silent as the runners take their marks. And looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Wait, wait, and the early favorite has crossed the finish line. Get the most out of your fertilizer investment. Don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. A good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 